<clears throat> Can you hear me okay? Thank you all. I'm very excited about this week. This topic is personal evangelism, and I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what we're going to do. The first two sessions are dealing with what really is the gospel. This morning's topic is the atonement. What did Christ's death accomplish on the cross? Tonight's topic is what, what, what must we do to be saved? One of the most important questions that anybody can ever deal with. What's the difference between going to heaven and hell? An eternity with God or eternity without God? What's the deciding factor? Huge question. After that, we're going to uh, look at some of the basic principles of communication. How can we communicate this in a way that the world really gets? We're going to look at worldviews, how a person's worldview, basic understanding and presuppositions are going to affect their message. We're going to look at some of the different methods we should use to become more effective ambassadors for Christ. Then we're going to start dealing with some of the more difficult areas. I'm going to share a time of doubt that I went through that uh, was a very dark time in my life, but God showed me a lot of things about doubt and some of the more difficult things to deal with in life. And then we're going to deal with some of the objections. I've got about eight of them. I don't know how many of them we'll be able to get to in detail. They're dealt with pretty in detail in the notes. And then, um, Finally, I'm going to teach you a really fun way to memorize scripture. So it was a way that just totally revolutionized my... If you see the corny cartoons, they won't make a lot of sense until that class, but it's a really cool way to memorize scripture. And then uh, finally, we're just going to look at what is our obligation to the unsaved. So this morning, we're going to start by looking at the atonement. A couple years ago, I, uh, I really started pondering and asking some of the hard questions related to the atonement. Why did Christ have to die? And during that time, I wrote down some of these questions that I was dealing with. And so as a start to this morning's session, I'm going to just kind of walk you through some of these sessions, some of these questions, sorry, that I had. For example, did Jesus have to die for there to be atonement? Did Jesus have to die before God could forgive us? Why does there have to be blood for there to be the remission or the forgiveness of sins? Is God's justice really satisfied now that an innocent man has been punished and brutalized? If God is all good, just, and loving, and he is really wrathful towards sin and sinners, how does the death of the innocent, either Jesus or a sacrificial animal, satisfy that anger? How does adding another injustice to the equation suddenly satisfy God's justice? Is God's justice about restoration or sinners getting their due punishment. If Jesus' death paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world, how is it just for God to extract it again from the sinner? So if Jesus paid for the penalty for everybody's sins, what about those who go to hell? Aren't they getting their penalty taken from them too? So God's extracting a double measure? Was the cross to satisfy justice or repair a broken relationship? Did Jesus die to save us from God or to save us from our sins? Did Jesus die to reconcile the world to God or God to the world? What was the problem that Jesus died to fix? Was it that God was angry with the world or was it that we were in rebellion and wanted no part of God or was it both? Was the atonement to fix a problem in God or man? If God could suddenly be loving and tolerant like everybody wants him to, would that suddenly solve our problem of sin? If God could forgive us without Jesus' death, would Jesus still have to die to bring atonement? 
If Jesus died to save us from God, does that mean if God were removed from the equation, then everything would be fine? Yes, we sinned and the wages of sin is death, but is this because God is duty-bound to punish sins, or is death a logical outcome of separation from a loving God? If your daughter is raped, is justice satisfied because the rapist receives retribution? Does this remove the hurt and scars your daughter went th through, has? How about if an innocent person gets punished, does that remove the pain? Is the cross of Christ primarily about God getting a chance to vent his wrath and have justice satisfied? Or is it about God showing us his great love, condescending to sacrifice himself to solve a problem that we caused? There's not easy answers. These were just some of the questions that I wrestled with. I grew up with the understanding that God took my spanking. It was one of the earliest understandings of the cross. Then I understand stood more about God's holiness and his justice and that he must punish sin. And I wrestled with these. Why did Jesus have to die? Some people have accused the cross as what happened on the cross as God the Father committing cosmic child abuse. That it's him taking his own son who never committed anything wrong and brutalizing him so that we can be free. But is that justice? And a lot of people raise the question, how can someone's moral wrongdoings, how can that even be transferred? Some people even say, you know, in Ezekiel it says that each man will be held accountable for his own sins. No longer will the child be held accountable for what the father did. So to start, I'm going to go through, I'm going to provide a historical sketch of what the church has believed throughout history. Um, the different views of what Christ accomplished on the cross can be classified under three categories. There's the classic view, which is that the power, the, that what Christ accomplished was a victory over the powers of Satan and the powers of evil. Then there's the subjective views of the atonement, that Christ died to accomplish a change in us. And then there's the objective views of the atonement, which is that Christ's death brought about a change in God. So let's look at some of the, cl the, the classic theories. One is the ransom theory. Now this was very popular in the church, the first 1,000 years of the church. This teaches that when Adam and Eve fell, they sold their souls and all of their offspring over to the power of Satan, and that Satan owned humanity. So God made a bargain with Satan that he would give his son in exchange for humanity. And Satan thought this was a great deal until he realized that he couldn't contain Christ. Uh, something similar to the ransom view is in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, another view is the, the fishhook theory. So some scriptural support for the ransom theory, by the way, is for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It says that in Mark. Another theory is the fishhook theory that God somehow tricked Satan into making this deal, and that when Satan gave up his claim to humanity, and accepted Christ, Jesus was the bait, but there was a fish hook in there, which was the, the sacrificial power of Jesus dying on the cross, and so that when Christ died and rose from the dead, Satan not only lost humanity, he also lost Christ. Um, for obvious reasons, this has kind of fallen out of favor because it seems like God committed some kind of deception. And there's also the question, why would God, who created us, have to pay off Satan? 
There is an interesting verse, though, in 1 Corinthians. It says, None of the rulers of this age understood it, what, what Christ was doing. For if they had understand God's plan, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So there is some scriptural support, I don't know how it works, for the idea that Satan made a mistake and he didn't really understand what was happening at the cross. Something that is coming back into, I guess, popularity today is the Christus Victor view, which sees it not so much as buying off Satan, but it does see the cross's primary objective as overcoming the powers of Satan, the powers of, of demons. And if you look through scripture with that lens, it's amazing how often it talks about the problems in this world being directly related to the fact that Satan and sin have dominion over us, that Satan has blinded our eyes. That's, and you just you look at the, the, around the terribleness that humanity can stoop to, the racism, the religious pride, the perversion. I mean, there is something that is so dark and so evil that grips hold of humanity. So the Christus Victor view sees the, which is, which means Christ the victor. Christ's primary accomplishment was conquering the powers of, of Satan. Now, whatever other views you believe about the atonement, it's very clear that this is one of the things that Christ accomplished on the cross. Uh, and not just his, 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 his death, but also his life and resurrection. It says in 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. One of the chief reasons that Christ took on human flesh was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So some of those are some of the uh, classic views that the, sees the cross in terms of victory over the powers of evil. Next are the subjective views which see the, the cross as God making a change in us. One is the example theory. It's based in 1 Peter 2. For this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow his steps. Christ gave us an example of sacrificial love that we should follow, but if it was only an example, it doesn't really move us that much. You know, if you are drowning in a river and someone jumps in there to save you and in the process saves your life but loses his life, there's an act of sacrifice, and you're moved by it because you realize he was trying to save you from the current. Now, if you're walking along with your friend and said, I want to show you how much I love you, and he jumps into the ocean and the river and dies, it doesn't really move you that much because he wasn't saving you from something. So with the example theory, Christ definitely left us an example, but he also had to accomplish something. It can't be just an example. Another one is the moral influence theory. And this is that God, through the cross, through the way he died, chose a way to die, chose a story to tell a story that we would be so moved by that it would humble, our, that it would humble us, that it would damage our pride, that it would soften us towards God. And it was an act of love that would draw us to God. Some scriptural support from this is, uh, John 12, 32, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance? Another one is the healing theory. This sees 
our primary problem as the sickness and disease both physically and of the soul and the sickness is directly the result of our sins and our separation from God so that Christ took away our sins and because our sins are taken away we can receive healing so it sees the primary object of the cross as healing definitely something that the cross accomplished Isaiah 53 said he was wounded for our transgression he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. In Exodus 15, God says, I am the Lord who heals you. Another one is the sacrifice theory. Now, it kind of depends on how you interpret the Old Testament sacrifices. God definitely picked, he had the story of the sacrifices so that we'd understand better why Christ had to die. Some people see the sacrifices as God is so angry at sin that when God, that God demands a kill, that when God smells the blood of the animal, it soothes him. Um, it seems to me there's some danger in that view, and it seems that that kind of view taken just by itself is more in keeping with some of the pagan views of God, you know, the Hawaiian islands where they'd have to sacrifice a virgin into the volcano because the gods were angry, or some of even the the Greek and Roman gods that capriciously demanded a kill to be soothed. Um, God's justice definitely demands the punishment of sin, but to, we need to be so careful in how we communicate these ideas to people because it's not just that God demands a kill, but other people see the sacrifices as not so much a change happening in God, but the fact that our, the sins were laid on the Lamb and that there was a trade. The perfection of the lamb would be transferred to the children of Israel, and the sins of the children of Israel would be transferred to the lamb. And so while the lamb became sin, it needed to be, the wages of sin was death, and the, the, the lamb would either be, would be burned and killed. But there was also another sac ritual where the, the sins would be placed on a, the goat, and the goat would be, the scapegoat would be let out and the goat would take the punishment for the sins. So the sacrifice theory sees it this way, that when the children of Israel performed the sacrifice, they would put their hand on the jugular, identifying themselves with the lamb. And there would be a transaction in place. Their sins would be transferred to the, the lamb. And this is why the lamb needs to be perfect, because God's moral perfection demands perfection. So this, in this view, Christ, who knew no sin, our sin is transferred to him, and he is taken outside the camp, and he's also killed at the same time of day that the sacrificial lamb was killed. And so Christ takes away our sins, and in exchange we get his moral perfection. So those are some of the views of a change in us. Some of the final views are the atonement as change in God. Anselm lived in the 10 hundreds. He reacted to the idea that was popular that God needed to buy off Satan. He came up with a view, view that said sin was an affront to God. And he said that sin against an ordinary person requires one set of penalties. But a sin against someone who is higher standing requires an even stricter, harsher punishment. 
it'd be kind of the, an example of if you slap me, it's not going to be too much. If you slap Barack Obama, there's going to be uh, <laughs> there's going to be a greater penalty attached to that because of his rank. And so Anselm ar argued that if you consider sin against an infinite God, it's going to require an infinite punishment. So Anselm came up with a satisfaction theory that said because it was humanity, it was a human that affronted God's moral character, insulted God, sinned against God, it had to be a, a human who paid the penalty. But because the price the, the is against, the punishment is against an infinite God, it's going to have to be an infinite price, and only God himself could pay such a, a price. So that was why Anselm thought that God, Christ had to be 100% man, because it had to be fully man who was paying the penalty. But he also had to be God, because only God could provide the worth of what was being paid. Uh, this is similar to ideas that Luther and Calvin, what's pretty common in uh, <coughs> evangelical circles, Another view is similar, uh, some scriptural support for Anselm's theory. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one man, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. The moral government theory says that if God were just to forgive sins, it would cause a collapse in the moral order. Because sin is, is so destructive, it's destroying us. And so for God to take the official position of just complete and total mercy, it would send the wrong message to us humans that sin is okay. We wouldn't realize how serious sin is. So in the moral government theory, God says, I'm going to forgive, but I'm also going to show how serious sin is, and I'm going to die on the cross as a public example of the consequences of sin. So in the, the moral government theory, it's not specifically Christ taking our penalty, it's God making a spectacle of his son to show us the serious consequences of sin. There's not a whole lot of scriptural support for that. Um, it does say that uh, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. In Romans it said, Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the th sins that were previously committed. So this is definitely one aspect of the cross. It does show the seriousness of sin. The Probably the most common view among evangel Protestant evangelicals, and a lot in the Roman Catholic Church, is the penal substitution theory that says that God is bound by his very nature to punish sin. That sin must be punished. Uh, it's along the same lines as just as God cannot lie, so God cannot overlook sin. It's just like a judge who claims to be a good judge, if he suddenly throws lenient sentences down, is no longer going to be considered a good judge. If your daughter is raped and you're very upset and you're wanting to see this justice served and the judge says, I'm a loving judge, I'm going to let this one go. No longer do you see this judge as a morally competent judge. That's a picture of how God in his holiness must punish sin for the same reason that God cannot lie. 
It's an aspect. At least this is how the proponents of the penal substitution theory state it. So God has a problem. He must punish sin, but he also wants to love and save us. So what does he do? He becomes a man, he lives the perfect life, and takes the punishment, takes the penalty, takes the pla our place, takes our sins, and deals with them. So that God can now forgive us because the punishment's already been paid for. Some scripture for support for this is, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Finally, there's the, the removal of God's wrath. that says that God poured out his wrath on Christ. Now there's a burned over area where, Christ's wrath, where God's wrath will not fall and will be safe from God's wrath if we're in Christ. So those are some of just some of the theories of the atonement, but I want to look at this at a little deeper level. Yes? Well, I'm going to get to uh, what I think Scripture teaches now. I think each one of these is incomplete, taken by themselves. Um, but I'll, I'll get into that. So if I still haven't answered your question, you can ask me again at the end. But I was really wrestling with this, why did Christ have to die? Why couldn't God just restore us? Why couldn't he just forgive us? And then I thought, <laughs> didn't someone else ask that question? Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Christ is wrestling with these same questions of atonement. But for him, it's not abstract theory. He's the one who's about to become sin, who's about to take on the consequences. And he's so stressed out about this that he's actually sweating drops of blood. And he's pleading with God, his Father, saying, is there, is there any other way that you can redeem humanity? I'm sure he was wrestling with some of these questions. God, can you remind why can't we just forgive sin again? Why can't we just wipe out Satan? He must have felt so weak and he was so tormented by what he had to go through. And he's pleading with his father, why? And it doesn't say that God gave him an answer, but Christ did give us an example that says, not my will, but thy will. So in order to understand what the atonement really accomplished, we need to look at our problem, the predicament we found ourselves in apart from the cross. So what is man's basic problem? Have you ever thought about that? Is it lack of education? Is it lack of money? Lack of good looks? What's mankind's most fundamental problem? Pride, which is another form of sin, which is separation from God. God is our most basic need, so the lack of God is our most basic problem. Here's are some of the destructive consequences of sin. It alienates us from a holy God. God is what we need in order to find, God's the source of love and beauty. God's what we need in order to find meaning and purpose in life. But the problem is, God is holy, God has a hatred for sin, rightly so, and we 
when we get even close to God, suddenly see our sinfulness. You remember that story where Jesus, where Peter was fishing all night and he didn't catch any fish? Jesus came on the boat and said, cast it down on the right side. And Peter said, whatever, okay, I'll do it. He did it and he got tons of fish. Well, at that moment, Peter's eyes were open and he saw a glimpse of the deity of Christ. He recognized that he was in God's presence. And what was Peter's response? He suddenly felt filthy and overwhelmed and wanted to run. He said, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Adam and Eve, right after they sinned, they wanted no part of God's presence. There's something about our sin that makes us unable to stand God's presence. That's our first problem. Our sin, our guilt, is making us run from God. Second, sin enslaves us. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We become so addicted to sin. I don't understand why sin has such a terrible power against us. Whatever it is, whether it's pornography, whether it's drugs, whether it's gluttony, whether it's an eating disorder, sin enslaves us. And even though we know we're harming our body, even though we're, we know we're harming those around us, we just keep doing it. Sin enslaves us. Sin also deceives us. And this is one of the most scary things about sin, is that it tells lies. It makes arsenic look like candy. It makes a destructive boyfriend look like a reputable guy who will take care of you. It makes pornography something that will destroy and sabotage your chances at ever finding sexual satisfaction. It makes it look so appealing. But then sin lies to us about who we are. Each man, it says in Proverbs, each man will proclaim his own goodness. And if you ask anybody, are you a good person? They're going to say, yeah, I'm pretty good. They will define the level of goodness somewhere beneath where they are. If they steal, well, at least they haven't stolen a lot. If they lust, well, at least they're not a rapist. If they've committed one murder, at least they're not a serial murderer. And you can always find someone who's beneath you, and it deceives you into thinking that you're pretty good. This is one reason why we don't often understand the atonement, is because we don't realize just how despicable and ugly we really are. Someone said, if you could see every one of my sins unmasked, every one of my lustful thoughts, my jealous thoughts, my petty, prideful thoughts, if you could see every one of my thoughts, you would no longer see me as a respectable person. You would see me as a monster you would want to run from. And God sees us as we really are. He sees the destructive consequences of sin. Some of us get offended by God's moral holiness. And you're saying, you, you, seriously, you can't overlook a little sin? You can't overlook the little sin of a man picking up a stick on the Sabbath? Well, God is slow to anger, but... We shouldn't kid ourselves that we're just innocent, naive people having a little fun. Our problem is so much deeper than that. But we lie to ourselves and we keep telling ourselves, I'm actually a good person. But we're not. And God sees that. Sin also destroys 
relationships. Sin enslaves us. It makes us focused on ourselves. And the more caught up you are in yourselves, the more it destroys your relationships. You know, you look at all the broken marriages, all the deadbeat dads, all the parents, all the children who were in foster homes, and there is so much abuse, so much ugliness that is happening in these marriages, in these relationships. And do you think this is the route that people wanted? Do you think any man who stands and looks into his bride's eyes on his wedding day says, you know, someday I really hope I become an, ab an alcoholic, abusive husband? Do you think any mother who holds her newborn baby says, you know, someday I really hope I'm so far gone on crack, I don't even remember where you are? Do you think parents who hold their precious baby want to become the abusive, misunderstanding parents they become? No, nobody wants to, but sin is destroying us. So we're caught up by this, this power that's deceiving us, that's destroying us, and we are hurting, we're continuing to hurt those around us. I mean, we hurt our parents, we hurt our children, we hurt our, our classmates, and we don't even care. Sin is just absolutely destroying this planet. It is a very serious poison. Finally, sin destroys us physically. There are physical consequences to ignoring God's laws, whether it's STDs, whether it's the effects of an eating disorder or anorexia. My wife is going to be talking to you girls. She had a sister. Sin has hit very close to, to my wife's home. Because when my wife was 17, her sister Katrina was 19 and away at Taylor University. And Katrina was struggling with an eating disorder, bulimia, and, she, and then pornography. And she got so caught up in this web of helplessness and depression, so caught up by the bounds of sin that she actually took her life. Came from a very sheltered, godly home. And just absolutely shattered the Wall family. Very real example of how sin can take a godly, beautiful Christian girl and just absolutely destroy her. So do you see some of the destructiveness of sin? Finally, not finally, you're not done with me for a long time. <laughs> so that's our problem, how sin has affected us. Now the other thing we need to look at before we understand, fully understand this atonement is how God sees sin. See, God sees sin completely unmasked. But God is so holy. You know, the problem with God is not that he's partially bad and partially good. The problem is that there is 100% pure goodness. And pure goodness must deal with evil. Pure goodness cannot overlook evil. Do you get that? See, we're not pure good. So we can, over, we can wink at sins like pornography and drugs and envy and covetousness. We can wink at those. We don't see the full destructive power. God does, and God can't overlook those sins. God has to deal with it and deal with it severely. And this is why God is a God of wrath. Because he loves us. God's wrath to us is his saying, I care about you guys so much. I care about your predicament. 
I care deeply about what you're going through, and that's why it makes me upset. Do you think, if, do you think God would be any kind of a respectable God if he wasn't angry at sin? What kind of a dad would I be if I let you molest my little daughter and didn't get angry about it? I would be a worthless, I would be a worthless dad. You know, I have no problems with any of you stepping on a mosquito, swatting a fly. I have no love for the little insect. <laughs> but if you were to do anything to one of my children, I would get angry fast. The reason is, is the, the, my love for my children is so much greater than my love for the insect. Do you see how there is a direct proportion in anger to how much the love factor was increased? The more love there was, the more anger there was at that which harmed it. Now, when you take infinite love, just imagine the wrath and the fury that God has towards sin. Because lust, when we're watching a movie, lust doesn't seem like such a bad problem. What's a little skin? Get over it. What's your big deal? But to a husband who's lost a wife to infidelity, to a father who's had his daughter raped, lust is unmasked for something that is so destructive that it just totally ruins God's greatest gift to us. The gift that God gave us that was supposed to be the clearest picture of the kind of relationship that God wants with us. So God sees sin, he sees the consequences of covetousness. Covetousness, no big deal, right? But if covetousness is becoming idolatry and covetousness is walking away from God, covetousness is walking right into hell. Covetousness is very serious. And then there's also the justice of God, that God must deal with sin. So if Christ had not died, do you see how there is this uncrossable gulf between man and God. On the one hand, God has his holiness and his hatred for sin. And on the other hand, we want no part of God because the, we even come close to God's presence and suddenly we're reminded we are not good people. We are terrible people. We have done so much moral crimes. And this isn't just some picky, hell-raising, fire-and-brimstone evangelist making you feel uncomfortable, messing up your self-esteem. This is just an honest look at who we are and what we've done measured against God's holiness. So this is what Christ, in his mercy, came to fix. If he hadn't died, this is the problem. Do you see how Yes, God must punish sin, but that even if God said, okay, if he held up a notice, I forgive all sins, does that fix any of the problems? Sin would still be deceptive. Sin would still be destroying us physically. Sin would still make us want no part of God. So it's not enough for God just to say, I forgive you. Something more needed to happen. I do want to be clear, there is a lot of mystery at what the atonement, I mean at how 
the atonement accomplished what it did. What is very clear, though, is what it accomplished. We're going to be doing several, but primarily the atonement can be what the atonement accomplished. To keep it simple, and when you're talking to your friends about it, it accomplished three things. It was victory over the powers of evil. It was the removal of our sins. And it was an example for us to follow. And I want to just touch on these. So Christ removed our sins. This is one of the things. By taking the consequences unto himself. You know, sin is its own punishment. It's, it's kind of like if a, a father says, you know, father doesn't have to say, if you cut your arm off, I'm going to spank you. All he has to say, you know what, if you cut your arm off, you're going to only have one arm left. You see how that sin would be its own consequence. And that our own sins, so many of our sins, have their own consequences built right into them. Christ, who committed no sins, took our consequences onto himself. The consequences of sin are separation from God, fear, and guilt, and all the terrible things that come from feeling cut off from God. You realize things like fear and guilt are because we've been cut off from God, we're not being satisfied by him? This is the terrible agony that Christ went through in Gethsemane. He took our consequences onto our sin. He who had done nothing wrong took our sins onto himself, and he entered God's presence as if it was him who committed those sins. Christ experienced tremendous fear on the cross. He experienced guilt. He who had done nothing wrong experienced guilt. He experienced betrayal. He experienced physical pain. Total anguish of soul because he was cut off from God. He took our sins unto himself in a very graphic way. And then, this is what's amazing. He offers us his perfection. This is an incredible transaction. And imagine you had a very stern classmaster. And he says, I don't want any of you fooling around. This is your final exams. And if you mess up this test, there's going to be very strict consequences to follow. In times past, the school teachers would actually beat their children for not getting good grades. But so, there's this stern class master. Now you spend the whole exam time stoodling on your page, not getting any questions right, and you notice that the teacher's coming back. You're a mess and you are starting to feel terrified about the consequences for what you've done. You wasted the exam time. Now imagine a, a classmate says, look, here are the perfect answers, perfectly neat and tidy page. He got all their answers right. He says, I'll trade you test papers. He trades you test papers. So when the, the teacher comes back, he looks at your perfect page and goes, wow, well done. Excellent job. And he walks over to your friend, sees the doodling, the wasted time, the wrong answers, and says, son, come with me. You have some terrible consequences. Can you imagine what that would be like? How would you feel hearing that student receiving the consequences for what you have done. You're sitting there with a perfect test paper. 
Do you get a little glimpse of the love that Christ had for us? Paul says, this is how God manifested his love to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our consequences and he offers us an amazing exchange. I lived the perfect life. I fully met all of God's righteous requirements. I will make you a trade. I will take all the consequences for your sins. It's a tremendous cost. And I will give you my perfection. That's one thing. Jesus also reconciled us to God. Do you know we can enter God's presence now with boldness? Because we know that God sees us as someone who has never sinned. Do you know what a tremendous relief that is? What a tremendous joy that is? It's as if we've never sinned. Think about all the bad things you've done, all the horrible images you've done, that you've looked at, terrible things you've done to hurt other people. And this is amazing, that we can walk into God's presence as if we have never sinned. We've received Christ's righteousness if we're saved, if we're receiving the benefits of the atonement. Christ broke the spell of Satan. This is another thing the, Christ, the cross accomplished. You know, when Christ chose to die for our sins, he chose a time in history where he picked a very public method of execution. The Romans picked a very painful death that would take several days, and they would crucify people on the busiest streets so that as many people could see the shame and receive the warning of the cross. The message of the cross was, this is what rebellion, this is what will happen if you rebel against the state. Jesus chose that method of death. A very graphic image for us to think about. And on the cross, Christ broke the power of Satan. One of Satan's greatest powers is his ability to deceive us. Two of Satan's most common lies are that God is not good, he doesn't love us. And that sin is no big deal. Sin is harmless pleasure. But on the cross, we have God himself screaming to us in pain, saying, this is the consequences of sin. It's ugly. It's painful. It's brutal. This is what happens when you are rebelling against God. Look at me. He's also screaming another message. He says, I love you. You had your sins separating us, but I was not willing to let you go without a fight. I would rather die than live without you. He's screaming in pain to us. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive these, each one of you. It was our sins that nailed him there as well. What Christ paid for. So we see on the cross, and this is, there is so much spiritual benefit from meditating on the cross, meditating on those graphic images, meditating on what Christ gave up. It does have a profound moral influence on us. So he broke the spell of Satan, but there's another way that Christ broke the power of Satan, because one of Satan's greatest hooks into a Christian is guilt. See, Satan is terribly cruel, and he tempts you to sin, and then once you have sinned, he keeps hanging over your head. He says, 
you worthless, dirty, rotten rat. You willfully sinned against God. You've spit in God's face. You are worthless. You have totally spurned God's goodness. You are worth nothing because you have sinned. You have violated God's law. And it's an effective ploy of Satan because he's pointing to God's holy standard to accuse us. You know, the story, Les Miserables, and Inspector Javert, who sees sin and the consequences, and he's relentless. Satan's like this cosmic Inspector Javert, will not let us get away with anything, keeps reminding us of our sins, keeps us bound in chains. But Christ made a spectacle. He took away those righteous requirements of the law. We erased the handwriting of requirements that were against us. And Paul tells us, who now can condemn you? Think about this. Who is the moral lawgiver? It's not Satan. It's God. And God lived the perfect life. He took your sins so that you could be made perfect. People, if you are truly saved, and we're going to discuss that tonight, but if you are under Christ's blood, you should no longer be living under the weight of guilt. That weight of guilt is what keeps you from communing with God. That weight of guilt is what is preventing you from ever finding spiritual power in your life. Because when you're guilty, you cannot commune with God. And when you're not communing with God, you're not going to be filled up with Holy, His Holy Spirit. And if you're not filled up with His Holy Spirit, you're not going to find the power to defeat your sins. That's why guilt is so effective. That's why Satan loves guilt. That's why we need to really walk in the cross. We need to be crucified with Christ. This is the other thing that Christ gave us. He gave us an example. He gave us footprints to follow. And the way to have Christ's blood applied to us is to die with Christ. To die to our sins. And as we die with Christ, Christ takes away all our sins and offers us his moral perfection. And then we rise to new life, where it's no longer us, the person who committed those sins. But every day is a brand new day where we have Christ's perfection. And anytime Satan tempts us to guilt, you can say, No, Christ made a spectacle of you at the cross. I am free. My Savior paid a tremendous price for that freedom. People, do you care? My mom wrote a song called The Ballad of the Bridge, and in it she tells the story of a man whose job was to open and close a drawbridge so that ships could get through and so that trains could get over the same area. One night, he was going out to shut the drawbridge because he heard a train coming that wasn't supposed to be coming, but he said, I've got to get out there. I've got to shut that bridge. So he was down there at the control panel, and just then he looked up to his horror, and right under the gears of the bridge coming down, he saw his five-year-old son, the love of his life, his only child. And he had a choice. Do I let everybody on that train die, meet their destruction, or do I crush my own son? so that these people on the train can live. And this is the choice that God faced. Do I let these people continue in their sin, their separation from me, their self-destruction, 
or do I crush my own son? That man, he made the choice, he looked away, and he crushed his son. And as he was in agony, watching the people on the train, people didn't even care. They were continuing to play cards, drink beer, acting as if nothing had happened. They didn't realize the sacrifice that had been made so that they could be free. Exactly how the atonement accomplished all that it did. These are just some of the clues that I've wrestled with. I'm still on a journey of discovering all that Christ really accomplished for us. But something that has been made so clear is that the powers of sin that were enslaving me were broken by Jesus' death and resurrection. And I need to walk in that freedom. That my guilty conscience that was separating from me to God has been wiped away and that I can stand clear, clean, pure, and innocent, and I can enter God's presence with boldness. But I also see an example. Here's one final way that Christ conquered the powers of sin. You know, sin has a terrible tit-for-tat cycle. You hurt me, I'm not going to forgive you till I hurt you back enough. I see it creep up in our marriage, and my family relationships. But what happens is we don't want to just hurt the person equally. We want to hurt them just a little more. And it's a vicious cycle that goes back and forth and it escalates back and forth. And Christ set an example for us on how to defeat this, to overcome evil with good. Christ took our wrongdoings against God. Our relationship with God was severed. But he took the consequences into himself and took them to God. And this is the way, as painful as it is, to overcome evil in your relationships, in your homes, and in your communities, is when you are hurt, take the consequences onto yourself, following Christ's example, who when he suffered, did not threaten, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. The reason you can take that sin onto yourself and is because you're not going to stay broken by it. You can take it to the cross and be resurrected, be restored, Christ did not stay broken by our sin. He rose from the dead and restored us. And that is the victory that's available to us, so we can rise in that newness of life. But that's the way to defeat sin. When, you are, when someone commits evil to you, swallow it. Absorb it into yourself, and then go to God for healing. But if you continue to exact this revenge, Jesus says, if you're not forgiving men their trespasses against you, my Heavenly Father will not forgive you your trespasses. Because it shows that we have not entered into Christ's cycle, or Christ's example of how to defeat sin. I just want to end this morning with a song by Joel Ingle, The Shadow of Your Cross. And as you do, just really thank your Savior for what he accomplished for you.